This is Archive Atlanta, episode 127, Listener Q&A, volume 3. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So it's been about seven months since my last Q&A episode, and I always get the most positive comments about this format how much people enjoy it. And I think someone just told me this last week. And so here we are, volume three. I pulled social media for your questions. I got some really great ones. They range from, you know, specific Atlanta research questions, kind of general research questions, uh, future episode topic, places in Atlanta. And so we are going to answer all of that today. Our first two come from Sage Roberts, and they are, why do a lot of houses say they were built in 1920, when it was actually earlier, and how to tell the year of your house was actually built if the records say 1920? So before we answer this, if you don't know what she's talking about, let me explain. A lot of older homes in Atlanta list their build dates on the tax assessor site as the closest rounded decade. And so 1920 is really common, but it's not always accurate. And so to answer the first question of why 1920 is so commonly used and address the rumors of it being related to a fire, I had to consult with the godfather of Atlanta history and research, Kyle Kessler. Kyle told me that the DeKalb County Courthouse had a fire in 1842, which we know uh, it did destroy records. There was a later fire in 1916, and those records were saved, but there is no record of a fire at the Fulton County Courthouse. He also noticed that there are spikes on even decades, so that they tend to round up on even decades, and then even some half decades, so there might be like 1925 or 1935, and this occurs at least through 1960 and to a lesser degree up through 1990. He suspects a lot of this is just really imprecise record keeping. Um, He did point out that a bill date is not exactly super important from a tax standpoint. And I think that most of the people asking me are history people. And so they want to know maybe more from curiosity, um, not so much for the, you know, data or legal purposes. And so I understand wanting to know. So with all that being said, the next question from Sage is, how do you figure out the year your house was actually built? The first and best method is to visit the deeds and records room of the either Fulton County or DeKalb County Superior Court. Now, I have not actually done this in practice myself, so I don't have specific instructions, but they have a website. You can call them. You can see if they have any COVID restrictions. I don't know if you make an appointment or if you show up, but this is the place that will have the most comprehensive set of documents on your house. So we're talking building permits if it exists maybe even plans, at the very least, the correct bill date. Now, if you can't get to the records room, I can share my less than scientific method with you. And again, this is my personal process as an amateur historian, so please let me know if anyone out there has a better way or a better method. The first thing I do is reference the 1911 Sanborn Fire Map, which is publicly available, and I will put a link in the show notes uh, for you guys. If you can find your house there, It will show your old street number, possibly even an old street name. Uh, And I've talked about this before, but the city of Atlanta passed an ordinance renumbering everything in 1925, which took effect in 1926. So if your house was built 
Before that, you are going to have to find out your old address number. You're not going to get very far researching without it. So once you have that, uh, you can take your old street number, you can take your old street names, and then you can go to the city directories, which Atlanta has digitized them intermittently through 1923. And I can also try to remember to put a, a link in the show notes for that as well. Now, this is hard to explain on a podcast, but you basically, let's say you go to 1909 and you see that your house is listed it's in the directory 1909 okay great move on to 1908 and so so on and so forth and of course there are years missing but let's say your house is not listed in 1903 but it is listed in 1904 that gives you an accurate build date of about 1904 a faster less successful method um, is to take your current address if it's built after 1926 of course and then search it in something like newspapers.com so oftentimes with newer homes you can find mention of them being built um even the real estate record the newspaper had like a real estate record section and so it normally says like permit pulls or this was sold from this person to this person so there's a lot of different ways to go about this. Now, if your house is built after 1911, so it's not on the 1911 Sanborn map, this is where it gets even more complicated. Um, there are later Sanborn maps. They're not accessible to the public without an academic subscription. Um, and really, they're not really until the 20s and 30s, so they're not always helpful. And then I tell people to go again to those city directories and do your best. Uh, it sounds terrible, but the directories are listed by streets and listed by cross streets. So let's just say you live at the corner of whatever, Maple Street and, you know, Elm Street or something. You can figure it out that way. But this is why I'm telling you guys, go to the Deeds and Records office. If you ever have questions about your house, though, you're always welcome to email me and ask me and I will do my best to research every house that someone asks me to research. Now, this leads me into my next question from Laura, which is what have you found to be the best resources for your podcast and what does your research process look like? So I use a bunch of different resources and it depends what my topic is. There are different methods for people, different for buildings, different for homes, different for places, but I will try to list them all. First, newspaper archives. Whether you get them from newspapers.com or through a higher education institution, those papers are a treasure trove of information, usually the best starting off point for me. And I do take into account, again, who's writing them, whether it's white press, black press, but it's the best place to, even if you find a headline sometimes, it kind of opens up the rabbit hole for you. Once I have a topic in mind, I always look for a few things. I check to see if there has been a National Register nomination written. So for a neighborhood, a building, or a district, these nomination forms have so much research that you can use and build upon and update. Sometimes they're from the 70s or 80s and it's not great, but it's a starting point. And then sometimes they're more recent and they're really well done. I also always search to see if someone has written a book about a topic or a place. Um, if I can get it from the library, that's great. If not, I'm pretty much amassing quite a personal library at this point. I also always check the quote-unquote Bible of Atlanta history, which was Franklin Garrett's books. Uh, and while they have some downsides, it's a good place to start and see what Garrett found in his personal research and again, expand on that. Lastly, I use a jstor.com subscription to check for any thesis papers about a topic. You would be amazed what exists out there in academia. 
I think I found a 400 page paper about the neighborhood union. So I always say like you just you'd be amazed at what someone did their doctorate and their master's on and that paper can be available for you. So once I have all of this compiled, I start reading and taking notes. And often this will lead me to rabbit holes or names or extra things to look up, but it gives me a way to start off an episode. From those notes, I create my narrative and then I record, edit, and publish. Also, shout out to archives, which I do not get to visit in person. It's very sad. Unfortunately, I have a day job. Um, but one day, I'm going to be independently wealthy and I'm going to visit all these places. But a lot of institutions have digitized archives that are great. So always check like the Atlanta History Center or the Robert Woodruff Library or Emory's archives. Um, they have digitized magazines that are amazing or photos that are amazing. So always check those as well, too. Moving on to some specific questions about Atlanta history, I got a question from T. Chang, who recently discovered Hollywood Cemetery. So if you're not familiar, Hollywood is a cemetery on the west side of the city near Cary Park, um, near the new Quarry Park, and it's unique in the sense that it's half abandoned and half active. And the abandoned part faces Hollywood Road, so it makes it really visible to people driving by. A lot of people are like, what, what is happening? Why am I driving essentially through an abandoned cemetery? First, let me say there are way more abandoned cemeteries across Atlanta than people can even comprehend. I struggle with making this information public because there are terrible people in the world that deface and destroy places like this. But I do also want to point out that there are active, well-known cemeteries in Atlanta that have abandoned sections that most people don't realize. Westview and Southview and Crestlawn, just to name a few. So back to Hollywood, what you're seeing when you're driving is really a combination of three cemeteries, Magnolia, Hollywood, and Monte Vista. The oldest, Hollywood, was chartered in 1890, developed on 84 acres of land along the Chattahoochee River streetcar line. And only seven years later, the stockholder company is in debt and sold in a share of sale. A lot happened in between, but I hope to cover that in an episode in the future one day. Um, but it was joined by Magnolia Cemetery in the 1920s, and then I think Monte Vista was shortly after that. Most of the abandoned graves that you're seeing are of white people, which sort of tells the story of white flight of the 50s and 60s. And there are actually about 60 documented Jewish graves in Hollywood, too. Now today, all of these burial grounds are legally owned by Lincoln Cemetery, which is an active cemetery off of Joseph E. Boone. So the whole thing is just very complicated. Cemeteries struggle with this, right? Like, how do we fund and maintain areas that we didn't exactly financially plan for, or we didn't take money from these people originally? I don't know the answers to this. Again, I hope to, I put this on the list for a future episode so I can get more in depth to it. But um, just so you know, that. You know, that's what that is if you pass it, but also there's a lot of places like that around the city. Carrie asked why the Inman Ormwood trolley got removed. Uh, so this answer really applies to every single trolley line in Atlanta. They were everywhere. It was super extensive system, and a lot of modern critics yearn for the days of this robust interconnected public transit system here because we sorely lack one. The first thing that signals the decline of the streetcar is the automobile. So from 1900 to 1906, the number of cars on U.S. streets goes from 6,000 to 100,000. By 1913, there are 1 million cars registered to drive in the country. And this is when middle class people really start to buy cars in droves. In Fulton County alone, there are like six to 8,000 cars registered in 1915. And then that becomes 20,000 by 1920. 
So by 1927, one in five people owned a car. And I'm telling you all of this because people stopped riding the streetcar, right? I mean, their cars are new and exciting and everyone has one. They're a status symbol and, you know, American dream, middle class, blah, blah. So then you have this period post-World War II and the rise of private automobile use and then the introduction of buses really signal the end of the streetcar system, which also at this point in history, you have to remember, is aging and needs upgrades and repairs almost constantly. Atlanta introduced trolley buses in 1949, and then, you know, eventually we've just paved over all the streetcar lines. Some are removed, but honestly, a lot of intersections, if, you know, you catch the right pothole um, or catch some road crews, you can see these streetcar tracks under the pavement. Jennings asked, who was Bessie Branham? I love this question. For those that don't know, this is the name of the big park space in Kirkwood. It's Bessie Branham Park. And I love that people are interested in questions like this. This is how my brain works. And I have often felt that lack of explanation of place names is really not, I guess, helpful. That's the right word. Um, if it makes sense, like you're, you're going to honor someone by naming something for them and they may not be universally famous. So like put up a description or something, right? But I'm not mayor. Um, also, when it comes to women's history in Atlanta, parks are some of the only places that you see things named after women or to honor women. Think about it. Do we have street names after women? Not really. But we do have a lot of parks named for women, and sadly, no one knows much about them. Elizabeth Watson Jordan Branham was a native of Thomasville, Georgia. She married Alfred Iverson Branham, who came from a pretty historic Southern family, um, long line of judges and politicians, of course, a Confederate soldier in there. And Alfred was president of Douglasville College from 1896 to 1900. Now, the couple lived in Kirkwood in an estate called Overlook. I have a whole episode, uh, 118, which is about Kirkwood. But Bessie was very much a woman of her means and of her time, which means she didn't work, but she contributed to her community in the only ways available to her, acting as secretary of the Georgia Federation of Women's Clubs. And then in 1911, she founded the Kirkwood Civic League. This was a group of local well-to-do ladies who acted as quote-unquote good housewives of Kirkwood, pointing out community needs to their husbands who actually legislated things. Bessie Branham played a huge part in the bonds and land purchases for the Kirkwood School, and she dreamed that one day land would be put aside for a neighborhood park for her children. And it was really her that convinced the city to purchase the space that today would be the park named for her. Bessie died in 1948, and she is buried at Crestlawn Cemetery, so you can go visit her. Atlanta Coffee Shops asked, what are some of the coolest behind-the-scenes places you have got to visit recently? Where do I start? This has been the hands-down best thing to happen to me in 2020. I am so appreciative that people want to share their homes and their buildings with me, and they don't think I'm a serial killer. It's the highlight of my year. One of the most memorable was seeing uh, a condo inside the Palmer building, which is right off Peachtree Street. It had the original footprint. There was original materials on the wall. It was like the entire building was, it was amazing to see sort of the quality of the construction and the materials of what was considered a really high-end apartment building in, you know, 1914 or whenever it was built. I also got to see almost every unit inside the Elliott uh, which is in Midtown. And it was so sweet of the owners. And it was cool because I got to see different examples of how different people decorate and use a space that is identical almost throughout the building. And that was awesome. 
The Met was really surprising. I think I didn't think I was going to be excited about a former industrial building, but it's really fascinating. And that kind of taught me, like, don't judge a book by its cover. Just go to all the houses. And recently, I got to go inside one of the Grand Dames, so one of the first houses built in Inman Park. That was a really special history nerd moment for me because I did so much research for the Inman Park episodes and then, you know, again, being in that really sort of famous house in Atlanta. And I look forward to more. So I have a ton of more exciting things to see. Um, If anybody out there listening, you know, I'm not going to murder you. Just let me come see your historic house. Albert asked me, what is happening at the Gulch? First disclaimer is that I do not do current events. I am strictly a history person. And when it comes to new development and current Atlanta politics, etc., I outsource most of that to other podcasts and local journalists. But I will share the basics of the Gulch development. Um, It's owned by CIM Group, which is a California company. Things started in the early 90s. And this downtown Atlanta project is called Centennial Yards. So if you go on that website, they'll show you all of their fancy plans and graphics and images about what they're planning. Generally, it's going to be about 12 million square feet um, office, residential, hotel, all that stuff, over 40 acres. There are, of course, criticisms, mainly about, I think it's like $1.5 billion in subsidy that the city gave them. This is not unique to this developer. We do this to everyone. Uh, Generally, though, everyone's pretty excited to see a part of Atlanta get developed that, you know, doesn't have a lot going on unless there's an event and bringing residents to downtown because we just don't have a high number of people that live in downtown Atlanta. I think the first thing that they finished is the Norfolk Southern building. Um, There's no one in it yet, but it's, I think it's complete. And I don't know which phase they're working on next. Lauren asked me if there will be an episode about East Point. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, My lofty goal is to do an episode about all Atlanta neighborhoods. And I'm especially fascinated by Hapeville and College Park and East Point. So I do hope to get to those sooner rather than later. I've lamented about this before, but neighborhood episodes are, they're hard. Like, it's a lot to work on. It's a lot to fit everything about a neighborhood in 20 minutes. And then there's a lot of pressure to get it right, you know, because I don't want neighborhood people to hate me. I also got asked, will there be an episode about the Met in Adair Park? Um, So I just talked about that. Typically, places like the Met that are just one development or one building do not have enough to fill up 20 minutes of an episode. But... Adam, who gave me the tour there, he gave me some really good historical documents and materials, and I'm going to start this sooner than later. I thought at first I would have to fit it into an Adair Park episode, but if I can get the Met to stand alone, I promise I will make it happen. I just want people to understand, like, everyone's like, what about this building? It's really, really, really hard to stretch a building out to 15, 20 minutes. Um, But if I can do it, I will do it, I promise. And if not, I kind of keep a miscellaneous list on the side, and then when I can fit something into a broader topic, I always do that. So there you have it, Listener Q&A, Volume 3 in the books. If you have a question for me, you don't have to wait for another episode like this. Uh, My contact information is always in the show notes. You can send me a message on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and I will try to answer it for you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and a review. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes. I have three new mini episodes that I uploaded last week um, about Fernbank Forest, uh, Jitneys in Atlanta, and Orion Frazee, who is a sculptor who did death masks of famous Atlantans. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.